May you be glorified with us, God, and among us, and in us, and through us, as we open your word together, as you have been in song, as you have been in praise, as you have been in prayer. Be glorified. Give us ears that are good to hear, eyes that are able to see, hearts that are fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent with your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So what's the wonder, the most wonderful time of year? It's not a trick question. What's the most wonderful time of year? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. So I'm going to draw a Christmas for one more week this morning. I said last Sunday on the 12th day of Christmas on what was effectively Epiphany Sunday that that would be our last Sunday in the larger Christmas complex. But I changed my mind. And if Craig and the choir can extend Christmas one more week, then so can I and so can we. We're going to do it. We're going to start with the passage of Scripture that we read last Sunday, and maybe reading that again a week later will be a good refresher for you who were here last Sunday when we talked about worship. Uh, We'll move quickly through this passage and on to some others, but listen closely as I read from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they reply, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And those of you who were here last Sunday, remember that we talked about the centrality and the importance in this passage of worship, not just Not God called and led the Magi from the east to Jesus uh, solely and primarily to worship Jesus. And this worship wasn't based on his virgin birth or that he was particularly cute or that he had his very own star, but rather that he was, that he would be and maybe already was king. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to worship, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, King. 
And just as we saw last Sunday morning and talked about and sort of unpacked the centrality and the importance of worship, not just in this passage, but throughout Matthew's gospel as bookends and everything in the middle, and then not just in Matthew's gospel, but throughout the scriptures, worship being a primary element of the action that happens around Jesus. So we will see this morning the centrality and the importance of Jesus as king, Jesus' kingship. Matthew recounts the events involving the Magi and what we have have to assume was a very intentional and even inspired way of creating a poignant and sweet juxtaposition between two kings. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for this child. Herod could refer to the one for whom the Magi were searching as the child. He could even refer to that one as Messiah. But he didn't and probably couldn't or wouldn't refuse to refer to that child as king. Did you notice? Because Herod was the king. And at the same time, Matthew tells us Jesus was the king. And a person can only be king if he has a kingdom. That's axiomatic. A person can't be king without a kingdom. And so it's no surprise that almost immediately thereafter in Matthew's gospel and Mark's and Luke's gospel similarly, we begin to hear about a kingdom. The next chapter, the very next chapter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, begins this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And as many of you know, uh, that when Matthew writes the kingdom of heaven, he means what the other gospel and New Testament authors write when they write the kingdom of God. But Matthew is certainly the most Jewish of all of the gospel writers and maybe the most Jewish of all of the New Testament writers or authors is reluctant. He refrained when and where he could from writing out the name of God as a sign of respect and awe and reverence, refusing to write the most holy name, Yahweh, and so substituted for the word God, instead the word heaven, in what scholars call a circumlocution. Let's say that big word together. Circumlocution, or another way of saying that simply would be substitution. This was Matthew's tack for avoiding what to the Jews was a sacred no-no, saying the word God or Yahweh. But, and so that is what Matthew chooses to do under 
the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what Matthew meant and what John the Baptist also was saying was that the kingdom of God has come near because the king had come near. And then at the beginning of the next chapter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, we read that, quote, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil tempted Jesus with, quote, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He laid before him different kingdoms as temptation. And that went on for 40 days. And after that, Matthew writes that, quote, from time to time on on. Jesus began, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What did Jesus preach? You got to help me. It's up on the screen. What did Jesus preach? Yes. In other words, change your mind, think differently, do a 180, go the other direction, be different, make a shift. Everything has changed because the kingdom of God has come near. Turn everything upside down or everything is being, has been turned upside down or maybe right side up finally, because the kingdom has come near. It is imminent, it is available, it is around you, it is close by, it is within earshot, you can see it. Here it comes, it is near. It's all around you. Jesus has inaugurated it. Jesus is ushering it in. The new kingdom has arrived and is arriving because the king is here. From Abraham on, the people of God had lived their entire existence in the midst of various kingdoms of other people. And the Jewish people themselves at times had been the ones in power and in various kingdoms. The united kingdom, the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and so on. And many of or most of the Jewish people of Jesus' time were looking intently for the reestablishment of some sort of geopolitical kingdom, maybe ushered in by a Messiah. But Jesus had completely different ideas and a different understanding and a different vision of the kingdom of God. When he preached the kingdom of God that had come near and was near, he was talking about something altogether different. The Jewish people, the, the people of God, were looking for a new or a renewed independence. Jesus talked about uh, an uncommon dependence on God. They were looking for power and autonomy and authority. Jesus spoke about submission and service in his kingdom. And so in these and many other ways, Jesus described a kingdom that had come near, that was taking root, that was different than what his people expected, and which is different in so many ways from what his people over time, including us, expect and look for. What we have in our minds, what we desire in our hearts. 
So since we're going to be looking at the kingdom of God for the next several weeks, let's do our best in a few minutes now to understand what this kingdom is, what it was like, what it's about, what Jesus meant by first describing what it was not. The kingdom of God was not, in Jesus' mind, Israel. Nor was it solely for Israel, which was a change and a shift for the people who understood that God's kingdom would be just for them and about them. And we can think about that in ways today, and some people do, in political or ethnic or national terms. The kingdom of God was not Israel. The kingdom of God is not the United States, as some people have thought over the course of our history, as if we're the new establishment as a nation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the church, which is what many people have thought and said as well over the last couple of hundred years in particular, equating the two as if the kingdom and the church are not the same. There is or hopefully is much overlap, but these two realities are completely different. And the kingdom of God is not a physical or geographic area or realm either. We tend to think when we hear in English the word kingdom, we think of things that are spatial and geographic, that have boundaries and areas like the kingdoms in the Middle East, like the United Kingdom, like the Magic Kingdom even for some. The kingdom of God though is not a physical or geographic area or reality. And finally, the kingdom of God is not a strictly future reality. And this is certainly the most common misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. Though the kingdom of God absolutely and certainly includes the future, future elements, future realities, is not a place up there that we go when we die. For one, Jesus spoke more clearly of heaven coming down to earth, you know, than he did of a very different heaven up there. He spoke of a heaven being reconciled to earth, of a reunification of heaven and earth more than he did a different place up there. And second, that many people have thought wrongly of God's kingdom in that way has probably stemmed from the confusion Matthew inadvertently caused by his use, his circumlocution, of the word heaven, kingdom of heaven, instead of the word kingdom of God. We think of heaven, thanks to Hallmark and Hollywood and pop theology, as up there somewhere and a place that we will all go to one day. Jesus speaks of the heavens or heaven in very real and present terms, however, which we will see a little bit in the coming weeks. So the kingdom of heaven is a future reality, but in no way is it only a future reality. These are the same, some of the things that the kingdom of God is not. Now a few of the things that the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is in Hebrew and Greek very much the authority itself of God to reign. His authority is his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the rule of God or the ruling of God in people's lives. The kingdom of God is the reality in which what God wills is done. In other words, what God commands is obeyed. What God desires is carried out. The kingdom of God is God's reigning or rule over people. Again, you can't have 
a kingdom without people. A person can't be a king without a kingdom and people over whom to, to reign. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. And the kingdom of God is all about its king. Uh, the British English journalist and later in life became a Christian, Malcolm Muggeridge, wrote these words on the front of your bulletin. Jesus' good news then was not that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. More than that, in some special and mysterious way, he was the kingdom. He was the kingdom. Now, Jesus taught uh, his disciples about this kingdom in all numbers of ways. A man named George Ladd has written what is probably considered the most authoritative book in English and in our time on the kingdom of God. And he writes with scriptural references supporting everyone, every one of these statements, these words. Men may sow, sow seeds by preaching the kingdom. They can persuade men concerning the kingdom. But they cannot build it. They cannot build it. It is God's deed. Men can receive the kingdom of God, but they are never said to establish it. Men can, re can reject the kingdom and refuse to receive it or enter it, but they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, and seek it, but they cannot bring it. The kingdom is altogether God's deed although it works in and through people. People may do things for the sake of the kingdom, work for it, suffer for it, but they are not to act upon the kingdom itself. They are not said to. They can inherit the kingdom, but they cannot bestow it on others. And this theme of kingdom, which is hard to get our minds around and about was the thing about which Jesus spoke more than any other thing. He talks about the church is mentioned three times in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of God is mentioned 31 times. Jesus talks more about the kingdom of God in all of the gospels in almost every chapter of Matthew's gospel, in most of the chapters of Luke's gospel. It is every, everywhere for him and the thing about which he was absolutely obsessed Fast forward to the next chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, and you know the first words that give us content of Jesus speaking and his teaching and his preaching. We call them the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Fast forward to another, the next chapter in Matthew's gospel, chapter 6. And Jesus is talking about worry and anxiety and stress. And he gives them a prescription for how to deal with that. And in simplest terms, that prescription was what? Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be given to you. All of your worries will be done with. Seek first above all things and in all things the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the reality of God, the rule of God in one's life. Jesus is talking about very much a relationship and a reality and not religion. 
He's talking about something that can happen in the here and now. And that's why it's critically important that we understand what Jesus was talking about and what he meant when he speaks so often of the kingdom. Because it's not something up there. And it's not some place that we go to when we die, at least not exclusively. But is very much a present reality according to Jesus, that is available now and that he wants for all people right now. Follow along on the, uh, on the front of your bulletin one more time. Some long and complicated and heavy words from Dallas Willard, but if we take the time to listen closely, uh, help us unpack what Jesus meant. Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made, Willard writes. He came very gently, opened access to the governance of God with him, and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom and truth among human beings. Having overcome death, he remains among us, a living reality. By relying upon his word and presence, we are enabled to integrate the little realm or kingdom that makes up our life into the infinite rule or kingdom of God. And that is the eternal kind of life. Caught up in this active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. They are what God and we do together, making us part of his life and him a part of ours. He inducts us into the eternal kind of life that flows through himself. He does this by bringing that life to bear upon our needs and then by diffusing it throughout our deeds. Deeds done with expectation that he and his father will act with and in our actions. No one ever told me about any of this when I was a kid. No one ever told me about this when I was in seminary. But the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom has come near. The kingdom is very much near because so is the king. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would show us your kingdom, that you would bring about your kingdom, that you would reveal it to us, that you would incorporate us into your kingdom, that you would give us the joy that, go along, that goes along with your kingdom and what we read about it, that you would make us available and willing and malleable for things to be turned upside down in our lives, by repentance, by turning around, by looking backward toward you, which is really looking forward. In the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done. May your kingdom come as your will is done, as what you've commanded is obeyed on earth 
in this church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our world, in and among and through us, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.